Progressive Rugby League. G'day all, John O'Duncan. Indigenous All-Stars Week has come around once again, and over the years we've watched on and all really at the powerful symbolism, the energy and the genuine feeling of celebration that each occasion brings. And that's before we get to the action on the field, the most compelling of contests, more often than not, of a quality and intensity that's rarely matched at any other point of the season. The Indigenous All-Stars is such a feather in rugby league's cap. Getting the concept to the starting line was bold enough, but the real achievement lies in putting in the effort to make it work to keep it evolving, and to pull off an event that expertly balances community connection with grand spectacle. And perhaps even more importantly, it brings vital issues to the forefront of our collective consciousness and provides an invitation for we, the non-Indigenous majority, to walk in the shoes of the communities that are trying to come back from over 200 years of oppression. Now, the dawning and the flourishing of the Indigenous All-Stars concept hasn't happened in a vacuum. Like anything, there are societal pushes and pulls and trends that lead us to where we find ourselves. And as I was thinking about the social ingredients that led to this concept, my mind wandered further to wonder about the drivers that led to other milestones in the relationship between rugby league and the Indigenous Australians. For example, what was happening in our society that created the conditions for the formation of the Redfern All Blacks, or the Moree Boomerangs, or the Koori Knockout? Well, we have just the guest to help us understand. Dr. Heidi Norman is a Gomorrah woman and professor of social and political sciences and convener of the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub at the University of Technology, Sydney. Among other topics, Heidi has written extensively about Indigenous involvement in rugby league in New South Wales over the decades and joins us today to discuss how some of the key moments in the history of Aboriginal rugby league in this state can help us better understand what life has really been like for Indigenous Australians through recent history. Dr Heidi Norman, a warm welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks, Jono. It's good to be here with you and talking about rugby league and Aboriginal participation particularly. Fabulous. Now, look, I thought it might be worth starting off by asking, what has driven you to research and write about the history of Indigenous Rugby League participation in New South Wales? Did did you grow up with the game? What was it? I think there's a few things. One is, as probably the same for you, growing up a fan of rugby league. My surname's Norman, that's my dad's family, so there's a history of rugby league participation in dad's family and also on my mum's side, um, families from northwestern New South Wales. In our extended family network, there are many players who are in first-grade ranks and, and also just outstanding country rugby league players. So there's that aspect. But probably, and this is, I'm a bit self-conscious about this because I know, you know, in a way, to talk about rugby league and bring discussions of rugby league into more of my academic work might, to some people, feel like pulling teeth. But for me, I guess I, the reason I'm in the, in the academy and the university is because I sort of have a craving to understand events in a broader context. And it can be, you know, in a historical context, it could be about causation. So you might think, you know, as you've kind of alluded to in your introduction, how do you get this incredible level of participation in rugby league that far outstrips 
population parity, if you like, mm. you know. Mm. You know, how do you get up to maybe 16% of Aboriginal participation in the elite and high ranks of rugby league? You know, you wouldn't really, in the country, in the bush or in the city and in the NRL sides, there wouldn't be a team that doesn't have an Aboriginal player and that Aboriginal player who is in both the men and women is something of a, a significant game maker for mm. that team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a pretty extraordinary reality given the history of the last hundred years, you know, certainly the 20th century history. So there was that interest in thinking, how does this come about? And as you say, nothing exists in a vacuum. You know, have to be ways of understanding that. And so that's what I've put a lot of my time into. Mm. And then, of course, a, a third factor is to think about an event like the New South Wales Aboriginal Rugby League knockout, that in your intro you referred to it as the Corey knockout, and sometimes that is how it's abbreviated. That event has been running for 50 years now. Mm. So that 50-year anniversary would have been in 2020, but of course, because of the health crisis, that didn't happen. Mm. I don't know if it will happen this year, but that aside, sometime soon, the 50th game will be played. Mm. And when you think about it, it's just over 50 years since the 1967 referendum, so it's Mm. just over 50 years that the Commonwealth Government became more active in Aboriginal Affairs Policy Administration. It's just over 50 years that self-determination, or not even 50 years, that self-determination was adopted as a policy. So you have rugby league sort of keeps popping its head up in amongst these sort of other big, grand sort of Mm. narratives about, you know, politics and social change and big stories about what is the place of Aboriginal people within the national political discourse and then sort of rugby league is there in the mix and you know i guess i sort of wanted to understand that a bit more yeah well we'll get into that a bit deeper as we go along i'm fascinated as well about you know just how things came to be and i guess you're in the the perfect occupation to sort of be able to dig a little deeper and and find out Now, Heidi, can you give us an insight into the relationship Indigenous Australians have with rugby league? Because it's an important one for both sides. Obviously, rugby league gets a lot out of the relationship. It's a a richer game. It's a better game. But what about from the side of the Indigenous Australians? Well, that's kind of hard to quantify. And I think you could ask that question of just about every rugby league fan and they might emphasise a different point. Mm. So in my response to that, what I would like to do is go back to that historical framework and think about the scales of Aboriginal participation in rugby league that I've traced. And I think there's still a lot more to be uncovered and a lot more to be analysed around these this very long history of Aboriginal participation in rugby league. Mm-hmm. So it might be good if I just track yeah. us some of that history because I think it's a fascinating history and really what that history of Aboriginal participation in rugby league throws up is quite a significant contradiction. Okay. And the contradictions, I think, are in two ways. One is, this is what Colin Tatz, who's a sociologist, he's done quite a lot of work around sport and also in genocide studies, mm-hmm. but just thinking about his sport work, he says, Australia is a racist country and it loves sport. And so sport has been an area where Aboriginal people in many different disciplines have excelled. So how does a country like Australia where on occasions where at least up until the late 60s, in New South Wales at least, you had, for the most part, not everyone was impacted in this exact same way, but you had over the course of the 20th century, up until the late 1960s, in rural towns, patterns of segregation. Mm. We had institutions like the hospitals, the swimming pool, you know, library, all of those kind of civic services had either a different regime of access and it was overseen by local government, it was overseen by private citizens and yet 
at the same time, you had Aboriginal men, say, if we go back to the 1920s of someone like Jackie Brooks, mm-hmm. who I'm keen to sort of talk about in a little bit more detail, where he played in Katoomba. He also played in the bush across western New South Wales. So from the mid-1920s, he takes to the field and the commentary in the local paper includes references to him being the star. He took to the field, say, a bit later at a game at Springwood, and as soon as he got on the field and he had his hands on the ball, the crowd rose to their feet in celebration at him arriving. He tried out for selection in the country rugby league side, or it might have had different language then, Mm. versus the city. He missed out selection then, but he certainly made representative ranks in the district competitions. Mm. But uh, there is something sensational that comes through So the journalists, they refer to him as electrifying, classy winger, and it goes on and on. He played for the Katoomba side and a few other sides in Western New South Wales from the mid-1920s until about 1936. So these are at times when the Aborigines Protection Board were gaining increasing powers. Mm. Jackie Brooks' family, his grandfather was a Gandangara man. They lived at a place called The Gully, which was a you know outlier, self-selected settlement on the fringes of Katoomba. And we should note that by the 1950s, all of Jackie Brooks's children had been either fostered out or institutionalised. Wow. And he sort of sinks without trace. He applies for and is awarded an exemption certificate. So that exemption certificate, which was issued by the uh, Welfare Board by that point, It was a mechanism that held the promise of you being able to, say, drink at pubs or gain housing in towns and access other services that would be afforded to every other Australian citizen. So for me, when I read the story of Jackie Brooks, and I wrote a short piece for the Australian Mm -hmm. Dictionary of Biography, I think is what that's called, if any of your listeners are keen to have a look at that. And John Lowe, a local historian based in the Blue Mountains, has written quite a beautiful lengthy essay documenting the incredible life of Jackie Brooks. There is much more to say about him. Mm. That's one contradiction. But say even I looked closely at some of the teams that participated. You mentioned the Redfern All Blacks, which was a mixed-race side mm-hmm. competing in Redfern. There was the La Perouse Football Club and Rugby League side. And they also, they're a predominantly Aboriginal side, but in a really terrific documentary made by a local La Perouse filmmaker, what comes through in that documentary is the spaces that came to be shared, not just between Blackfellas in a place like La Perouse, where that was a mission or reserve, really, from the end of the 1800s. But during the Depression years, when you had people of colour and other poor people who found themselves sharing a status in society as outliers. Mm. So in that documentary, some of the La Perouse older people at that time spoke of their appetite for inclusion, including Chinese who worked in the market gardens and other southern Europeans in their community and that extended to the football site. So, you know, I think some really interesting stories start to emerge about how in the city, at least, in urban, industrial, working class areas, rugby league becomes an arena for not just Aboriginal people but also other marginalised people to compete. So, you know, I think the city, the city story is one thing. Yeah. Um, out in Dubbo, just continuing that theme of industrial connection, in 1947 I came across a story in the local paper of a side, the Waratahs, and it was described in the news clipping as a mixed-race railway workers team mm-hmm. entering in the local comp. They may well have participated in the local comp before then or after, but at least that's a distinct reference. Hmm. And then there were other Aboriginal reserves or mission sites. So I think this is where a little bit more research 
could be done. So, for example, on the south coast, there was a team, an Aboriginal side from Unandera, that participated in like a um, display game against the town side. So this is in their banner to celebrate the opening of the Paramount Picture Theatre in the 1930s. The banner reads, Abos v Unandera, for a week of activity celebrating the opening of the Picture Theatre. So at that time, Picture Theatres were the absolute bee's knees, so it would have been quite thrilling to have a Picture Theatre come into town. And here is an Aboriginal side, part of an exhibition matches in that celebration. Yeah. Seems like a bitter irony given that you, in all likelihood, would have had no or highly circumscribed access to that Picture Theatre. But there you were, part of the celebrations of its opening. So what, what does that say about what the Indigenous experience was at that time? So obviously they're kind of semi-admired for their abilities athletically, but also they're ostracised and segregated and not allowed to you know, drink in pubs and not allowed to do what white people can do. So what, what's that all about? Can you explain that to us? I think all I can say at this stage is that it's identified as a contradiction Mm. because um, I think we need to do a lot more work and I don't know how you would sort of drill down to understand that more except to say what a remarkable contradiction that, Mm. you know, black bodies are despised in some respects. There are also stories of, you know, Aboriginal men being good workers but for the most part the structures that prohibit your access to towns there's an ever-increasing threat of your children being removed. Your children are being removed in order to leverage access to land. So where there are reserves and missions, say, you know, along the south coast and everywhere across New South Wales, really, the threat of the segregation of public schools is one way that local white communities leverage their power to gain access to land. So the missions or reserves as white towns expanded, they get pushed further and further. They're already on the, say, the other side of the railway track, the other side of the creek or river, and they get pushed further and further away as towns expand. So we see there are significant demographics, so population growth in rural towns. After the wars, there's the allocation of land to returning soldiers as part of a soldier settlement program Mm. and that places increased pressure on land so you have aboriginal people being pushed further and further out probably sounds a little bit like i'm laboring that point but i'm just trying to at least allude to these wider connections Mm. and that all the while there's participation in rugby league that in a way it doesn't make a lot of sense except to say there was clearly a tolerance and acceptance to an extent of the flair the ability the athleticism of aboriginal men at that time to compete in rugby league. Is there a connection? You know how sometimes in modern day sport, Aboriginal players are sort of admired for, you know, being magical or, you know, having these innate natural abilities that that no one else has. Is there a link there between the past where, you know, Aboriginal people would just be there for for show and and today we we sort of sometimes ignore the, the hard work that the top NRL Aboriginal players have gone through to get to the top and we just sort of, you know, say, oh, they're magical, it just comes naturally for them, they're so lucky kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's definitely a factor, but there is something else that emerges, and I think what you're saying is a very valid point, and I think it's an idea to hold on to because Mm. no account of this period is sufficient. And so I think what we can see is just these different sort of ways of understanding it, and they don't necessarily tie up into neat bows at the end. Yeah. So, for example, I looked at another period in 1952 because I was thinking about 
how do we understand the state, as in government, ambitions and then how government, say the Welfare Board, and this is now the body that has quite significant, if not total control over the lives of many Aboriginal people, certainly mm. people living on the missions and reserves. It's possible that you could move to the industrial centres like South Sydney, Balmain mm. and other places and have a life that was less under the scrutiny of the Welfare Board. But in those cases, you still had the hovering presence of the police. Right. So this, this kind of state surveillance was a really distinct presence in your life. Mm. So I looked at the year 1952, and it's the first year the Welfare Board started putting out their magazine called Dawn Magazine. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, you know, a critical take on it. It was a work of propaganda of the Welfare Board. It was purported to be a magazine for the Aboriginal people of New South Wales, but it was also a way that the board directors sort of announced and articulated their policy ambitions mm. and they spruced their civilising mission, which was assimilation to politicians and to a broader public. Right. So it was kind of a propaganda tool that was less... It was, certainly was focused towards Aboriginal people, but it had a much larger audience mm. that was less explicit in yeah. what, how they described it. So I looked at the year 1952 and I put in the search terms football and rugby league and I came up with 44 entries over the year 1952 and so that's over about 10 issues. Mm -hmm. And what emerged there is that Dawn reported on the success of rugby league successful boys, say, from Kinchilla Boys' Home, and then all of the, the many Aboriginal sides that competed from the reserves and missions. So that was the Maury Boomerangs. There was a casino, all-black side, Cabbage Tree Island. There are just about every reserve and mission had an Aboriginal rugby league side competing either in competitions, like knockout-type competitions between reserves and missions, or in the local competitions. And what I concluded by looking at the Dawn magazine is that they saw Aboriginal participation in rugby league and perhaps sport more broadly but I just focused on rugby league, as a vehicle to achieve their assimilation ambitions. Right. So what they spoke about, this is a kind of critical discourse analysis of those references. Mm. They spoke about the modernising effect, the, the disciplining of the body, you know, that you'd be showing great integrity. And there were other examples where, say, the deputy of the protection board visited a mission on the north coast and he had with him there the local police, the local head of rugby league, someone from the church. Mm. And so it was this great talk about the potential for the community to be accepted by the wider white town and how rugby league was very important to showing ability and et cetera. It goes on right. and on. Yeah. So that was the magazines or, or the people behind the magazines idea. But I guess is that something that would be contested in terms of rugby league instead being an empowering vehicle for Indigenous Australians? Obviously, like that, that's one take on it. Would, would that be contested? Well, I think this is what Dawn is saying. So this is government propaganda. This is how the government is representing Aboriginal participation in rugby league. Sure. So that's in 1952. So just say, if we jump to the 1960s and 1970, for instance, what happens is... A group of Aboriginal men, they're from northwestern New South Wales in the town of Walgett and a few from Kempsey area mm -hmm. and another fellow who's living in Sydney. So there are six men. They're in their late teens to early 20s, which is pretty amazing to think of that 
today mm. as of a group of sort of 19, 20, 21 year olds sitting around and coming up with an idea of a, a rugby league tournament that would then go on to last for 50 years. Mm. So in 1970, they come up with the idea of a statewide Aboriginal run tournament. In its initial year, they had five teams competing. But one of the ambitions they had was to bring community together. Mm. To create a platform for a lot of Aboriginal players in the bush who were so incredibly skilled but were overlooked by the talent scouts because of the lack of bush recruitment and racism. But mostly what they wanted was a way to bring people together and celebrate being Aboriginal, celebrate community life hmm. that they said was familiar to them from their young lives growing up in places like Walgett and Kempsey, but now being living in the city, that was something of a gap in their lives. Hmm. So for them, a natural instinctive response was to dream up a, an Aboriginal rugby league tournament that would bring people together. Hmm. And so today that event is described as a modern-day corroboree. Yeah. So um, what I'm suggesting there is if we think about what the state ambitions were, just based on the analysis of, of that particular magazine mm. as being about assimilation, fine, upstanding citizens, and by the 1970s, at least the late 60s, what was being thought about was rugby league as a way to demonstrate cultural difference, mm. to demonstrate and to create a forum, a place, a site, a space for your connections to flourish for cultural affirmation and belonging and being together. Yeah. So I think, in a way, those two events, the knockout and then how we can read the government ambitions, probably between those bookends, we see this incredible contradiction again. Mm. But also, you know, I think the contradiction here emerges as state ambitions versus Aboriginal community ambitions. So where the state was trying to rub out your Aboriginality, here are Aboriginal people actually using rugby league as a vehicle yeah. to maintain and reinforce your identity. But I don't think we want to strip out the significance of rugby league here because one is that you could earn an income. It was a chance to show off and to show your flair. It was an arena that you could excel at when most other arenas were closed off to you. And I think that broader context of rugby league as a working class sport, a lot of these events were taking place around the industrial working class centres. Mm. And I don't think we can strip out class and economic context from yeah. thinking about rugby league. And, and also, you know, what other options were available to you? You certainly weren't going to universities. Those sort of avenues were only just opening up by the late 60s. Mm. And, gee, that door, there was only a millimetre sort of slice in that door yeah. at that time. It was very reluctantly opening up. You were marginalised in, in so many ways. But I guess a sport like rugby league, and there might be some other comparable examples, the overhead costs are zero. Mm. All you need is a bit of space. Plenty of people who are around about your same age or size and, you know, you don't really even need a ball. You can throw around sort of some newspaper in a sock, really, if that's yeah. what it comes down to. So I think those economic factors. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, a really interesting point that you make there, Heidi, because when you talk about the avenues available for Aboriginals in sport, to me it sort of brings to mind some comparisons with rugby league and, and other sports. And I suppose the, the most obvious that comes to mind just because of what's in the news at the moment is the relationship Australian rules football currently has, or the fraught kind of relationship that sport has with Indigenous communities of that sport. 
So I suppose, why do you think a sport like Australian Rules, which really has a, a similar participation rate and is very popular among Indigenous populations in AFL states and territories, why do you think they've struggled recently to, to come to grips with what you might think is a modern, mature relationship with Aboriginal people? Because you get to the point where this weekend, Rugby League is, is celebrating its Indigenous All-Stars game and all things considered seems to be in, in a pretty good space uh, with its Indigenous community at the moment. And it's a stark contrast to what's happening in the AFL, which is is still reeling from its its biggest club, Collingwood, being sort of outed as being systematically racist over the past couple of decades. So how does it get to such a point where it gets so fraught? And I guess on the flip side, what has Rugby League done right to create the conditions where it seems to be a fairly decent relationship at the moment between Aboriginal people and the sport in general? Yeah, I would hesitate to come out of the blocks and congratulate Rugby League, Mm. although I think what you're saying is a fair comment, just at an observational level. But I think, you know, say, just look at the statistics. I've focused mostly on New South Wales, but Mm. there is an incredible story also about Queensland and the Murray knockout that has a more recent history. Murray's competing in Rugby League also in Queensland. So, you know, if we think about the sort of Aboriginal players who came into the game, Ray Blacklock, Sims in the South Sydney, had Larpa Stewart playing for the Roosters on the wing, and and of course Arthur Beetson was there as a captain of Mm. the side and then captain of the national side. You've had Aboriginal men as um, coaches in the national side. One thing that's developed, I think there have been some really good advocates, and many of them are former rugby league players, who have gone into the rugby league administrative side and they've played a really good role in building up a capacity of Aboriginal men and women, say, in the coaching and those other administration roles Mm. across the state and certainly in the bush. So I think there are quite a few factors, but I'm hesitant to say, oh, yeah, rugby league is doing a great job there because I anticipate that at some point there will be a lot more of a scrutiny of the kind of racism that... Aboriginal players, men and women encounter in rugby league and certainly the strategies for dealing with institutional racism and ways that clubs resolve those kind of concerns that players raise. We could you know, think of a few examples in New South Wales where concerns of racism have been raised by players mm. and I don't know that there was a particularly significant response to those claims. I did observe also when one of the players from South playing in fullback spoke out about the national anthem and was raising concerns about broader sort of structural racism, I did observe in the Murdoch press that he started to be quite poorly represented. Mm. So I'm not so certain that there isn't similar issues that could or have already been raised in terms of rugby league. But, yeah, what to say? One is that maybe there are different patterns of participation in AFL over rugby league. Certainly some of the big differences are that there's a kind of tribalism in inverted commas in Victoria in terms of AFL. You know, there's a good body of work that makes the argument that AFL is continuous with a traditional uh, Aboriginal sport. Yeah, so I'm reluctant to sort of... No, fair enough. ...hard and fast conclusions, but I think it's a really good point to raise. And I think, you know, it goes back to Colin Tatz's point. How is it that Australia is a racist country? And it loves sport. And when we say Australia is a racist country, of course, we all feel offended by that because you think, well, I'm personally not racist. But I guess what we're talking about are the structural factors that have built the nation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, undeniably, that is a white Australia policy and assimilation, which was geared towards actual eradication Mm -hmm. of 
cultural difference. So when we say a racist country, that's what we're talking about. And I think what I was trying to allude to in looking at what the government ambitions were through Rugby League, what I concluded is that they saw Rugby League as a really useful way to achieve assimilation. And in actual fact, you know, I think what we're seeing is actually the opposite of that. And in fact, I think Aboriginal players and the many people who have been advocating through the executive ranks on on the council, on the various committees and so forth, Mm. have actually advocated for rugby league to change, for rugby league to be a game that, you know, embraces and and accords Aboriginal players and and issues. Mm. Yeah, well, that's fascinating stuff. I guess the thing to note is that while rugby league's relationship, I'm saying it is in a pretty good space at the moment, yeah, I, I guess uh, I'm not saying it, it has come easy or that it's all smooth sailing. I guess um, just making the point about the, the time and effort it's taken to get to this point, however you describe what this point is. So I just want to go back now to some of the, the key moments in the history of Indigenous Rugby League, just to get an idea of how things came to be. What were the societal factors that sort of influenced these these moments? So Firstly, we spoke quickly about the Redfern All Blacks. They're quite a famous local Aboriginal club. They were formed in 1940. So what was happening in New South Wales that created the conditions for the formation of that particular team? So across the missions and reserves, well, just to go back a little bit, so say by about the 1890s, the Aborigines Protection Board was initiated. Mm. And by that time, there was a depression where Aboriginal men and some women had been able to secure employment on farms and then also related to the gold rush all of that sort of work was starting to dry up and so you found yourself families were kind of settling on the fringes of towns Mm -hmm. and so the protection board emerged as a way to manage and control this problem so protection at that time was really about i think it sounds crude it's hurtful to say but it was really about containing aboriginal people with a view to the inevitable demise of the race. You know, so this is at the height of race thinking, hierarchy of race. Mm. Yeah, like there was a dominant theory. Well, I'm not sure if it was a dominant theory, but a a predominant theory was that the Indigenous race would die out sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. The protection was sort of smoothing the dying pillow, but they were also very alarmed at the rise, certainly over the 20th century, uh, the rise of population but of mixed descent. So they were very, very concerned about mixed blood. So again, this goes back to race science, an entirely bogus Mm. body of work based on scientific fraud and and without any evidence. So they were, you know, at the same time, they, as in some scientists and government officials collecting bones and craniums and stealing them from morgues, sending them off for various experiments in institutions around the globe. So there's a protection regime, but there's concern about the growing mixed race population. So this is really where increasing powers are extended to that protection board from about 1909. And they start inserting managers over these sites. So say one of the earliest managers was out of Wellington and La Perouse, but even by say the early 1900s on the south coast, there was a manager appointed. And there's an early photo of a team. I don't know if it's Rugby Union or Rugby League, so this is in about 1908 Mm. in one of the board records. So that, you know, there needs to be a lot more research to to document that case. Mm. But that would be phenomenal to think that in 1908 you have an Aboriginal Rugby League side Mm. playing uh, under the auspices of the mission with a mission manager appointed down there. Mm. So 
by this time you've got these missions and reserves that are both sites of containment and segregation and they're also expelling people as members from the reserves who they deem to be of a particular blood quantum that would have you no longer be deemed Aboriginal according to some sort of bogus scientific criteria. Mm. So it's this real, very contradictory sort of behaviour mm. that the government had. And so Aboriginal lives were pawns in these various shifts and bumps along the way of their policies. So there was that era from the beginning of the 20th century. They started to remove children for apprenticeships. So again, it was treating Aboriginal children, very young people, as really form of free or very subsidised labour for various sectors, domestics and, and boys and bushwork. So you've got that by the 1920s and that's where the beginning of an Aboriginal political movement is advocating writing letters on behalf of families to stop these practices of removing kids. Mm. So at that time, from about the 1930s, that's where we see Teams like the Maori Boomerangs, Arambi All Blacks from Kaura. There's a Tweed Heads All Blacks, Barabadee, aside from the mission out at Coonabarabin. Again, you know, on the other side of the river, out of town, there's Bellbrook Mission from the Kempsey Valley, mm. Foster Hawks from Sunrise Station, that was later known as Perfleet, and many, many more. These sides are competing from the reserves or missions, and you see patterns of the Aborigines Protection Board, they were underfunded. They were also sort of fighting for their existence at different times. They were headed up by odd bods and misfits, drunks who, you know, went out into the night and shot their pistol up into the air. You know, that, say, that's an example from Vrewarana. And then after the Second World War, there's a shift already underway and so the authority shifts from being a protection board to a welfare board. I hope I'm not labouring these points, but just very briefly, what mm. we might highlight is that you know, after the atrocity of the Second World War are exposed, what emerges is the beginnings of a human rights discourse. Mm -hmm. And that race science thinking that formed the basis of a control over Aboriginal lives, mm. it really comes into critical focus after the atrocities of, of the Nazi regime are exposed. Right. You have, have the United Nations and the elimination of racial discrimination that comes a little bit later. Mm. But, you know, a human rights framework is part of the shift towards a welfare approach in the administration of Aboriginal lives. And assimilation arguably um, fitted within that framework. But over time, there is a much more robust view of the elimination of racial discrimination that's not just about equality and inclusion of citizenship, it's also about the exercise and flourishing of difference. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge... A huge change in, in the space of a, a couple of decades. Yeah, and again, you know, what I think is interesting is we see Rugby League as a forum that holds where these ideas are held. You know, we can see them playing out mm. in terms of Rugby League. And, and so you mentioned a whole bunch of teams, Maury Boomerangs, for, for example. So these teams were, were formed on the missions and that pressure that was put on the missions leads to sort of a, a spilling out of the population towards the city where there was less pressure from the state and perhaps more economic opportunities as well. Is that what led to an Indigenous population around Redfern and the, the inner city of, of Sydney? Yes, yeah. Sorry, I got it carried away. I didn't no, come that's back okay. to the question. Yes, I think, you know, there are push-pull factors. Mm. So part of assimilation was also forcing you off the reserve or mission and into towns in pepper-potted 
housing, so black and white checkerboard housing, where your sort of inculcation into, you know, white suburbia or towns would be also achieved by the surveillance of your neighbours. So this was also about, you know, imbuing particular social order and behaviours and attitudes by dint of surveillance and I guess the threat of ridicule and and certainly the ever-present hovering threat of the removal of your children. Mm. So there were push-pull factors, but certainly a pull factor in places like South Sydney was your ability to create more security for your family, be more secure, and the abundance of work. Mm. So Redfern in the 50s and 60s and perhaps even in the 40s, my research certainly talking with older people a few years back who have memories of Redfern, they speak of the abundance of employment to where you could just walk into a factory, Mm. men and women, and get work you know, from that day forward and work until you had enough money to go off and have a good time and then sort of return, you know, with a little humility and and be embraced back on the factory floor. So you had that abundance of work, I think, was a really big factor. But playing rugby league was a factor as well. So quite a few men who I spoke to in the research on the knockout, they mentioned the money they earned playing rugby league on the weekends. Right. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was certainly enough, you know, to shout a round of drinks and and enjoy one another's company, be together. That's very interesting. Now, let's skip ahead now to around the the period of the, the formation of the New South Wales Aboriginal Knockout and the late 60s and early 70s, which we kind of touched on earlier. But how can we reflect on that that formation of that knockout? I know, like you said earlier, it's around the 50th anniversary of that first knockout. So what does that milestone tell us about how the Indigenous experience was evolving? Like you said, in 1967, there was a referendum. There was the Freedom Rides as well, I understand. So was there like a, a growing confidence in the Aboriginal movement or political movement what was going on back then that kind of led to to this moment yeah so you know the knockout started in 1970 and if you think about it it was around the time as you said after the 1967 referendum redfern you know must have been just such an exciting place people were organizing to create these unique aboriginal services unique in the world the aboriginal medical service the aboriginal legal service Mm. black theater land rights was mm. was coalescing as a movement and it you know eventually by 1972 you had those same cohort of living around redfern south sydney inner city who then went to canberra to erect those um, beach umbrellas for the aboriginal tent embassy on australia day of 1972 mm-hmm. and part of their protest there was to link up the land rights movement that was happening in new south wales with the land rights claims that were emerging in northern Australia against federal government's approval of a bauxite mine. So, you know, we can see the emergence of a pan-Aboriginalism, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the Aboriginal flag emerged. Mm -hmm. So this idea of a national Aboriginal identity that had not been the case because, in part, you know, when I've mentioned the Aborigines Protection Board and then the Welfare Board, they were all state-based regimes, and Mm. those regimes controlled your movement and it wasn't until after the 67 referendum that the federal government became involved in the administration of Aboriginal affairs. Mm. So, you know, we can see that's certainly one factor, this politicisation, growing sense of a national story. But also, I guess what sort of sits within that is also the idea of cultural fluorescence, mm-hmm. you know, a sense of being a people with culture, that the language was, was gaining momentum there. 
and it countered what had been government policy, which was assimilation. Mm. You know, it was like scrubbing out cultural difference from your life, mm. off your tongue, off your feet. Mm. So I argued in that work I've written about the knockout is that it's a modern-day corroboree. We mm. might interpret the jerseys. They get brighter and brighter every year mm. as, you know, body paint and the rugby league as a form of dance. Yeah. And it might be a bit of a stretch, but uh, I tried to imagine uh, that how rugby league, this the oval, became the stomping ground for ceremony. And in, and in some respects, there is a replication of that pattern. You think about people coming from all over New South Wales and and even now more of a trend of returning to your town or your country of yeah. origin, to your nation of origin, mm. in order to compete in the knockout. So I guess they're the ways that the knockout provides a forum yeah. for cultural expression. It's really, yeah, it's really interesting to put it in the, the context of the time as well and, and uh, what was happening in, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, yeah, the, I mean, the thing is, I spent a lot of the Australian summer listening to cricket on the radio and, it, and it's par for the course for the commentators to, to rattle off memories from what happened in the 60s and 70s like it was yesterday. And it's a reminder that this period is in living memory. It's a blink of an eye ago. A blink of an eye ago, you know, the white Australia policy was, was still law. A couple of blinks of the eye ago, uh, there was a frontier war that, that killed by many estimates well over 100,000 people. So in many ways, it gives some perspective on how far we've, we've come. But I think more strikingly, it reminds us that the journey to deal with and somehow remedy the damage that, that's been done on the Indigenous populations, that's really at only its early stages. Obviously, you can't wipe away the effects of, of years and years of uh, decades and decades and centuries of oppression. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting one. I, th- I mean, the thing is, I think most Australians understand that Indigenous Australians have been treated poorly and accept that this has led to disadvantage. But I think what's harder for people to grasp is the concept of compounding disadvantage. And I think it's the the compounding nature of the disadvantage that that entrenches it. So, yeah, that's what it kind of makes me think when you talk about the 60s and 70s. And it really is not very long ago that this kind of movement was happening. And we're really at the early days of even trying to get to the starting line of kind of remedying it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, John, I think what I would also highlight is that the past is always in the present. It's either an echo or a shadow. And I think what Rugby League, a focus on Aboriginal participation in Rugby League reveals is the incredible continuities of Aboriginal values, of Aboriginal aspirations over many years. Mm. And you think, sure, we can stack history up and we can, we can map out a pretty atrocious history. But I think more so what comes through here is an incredible interest, abiding interest in surviving mm-hmm. and taking your life and your community's ambitions into your own hands and making things possible. Yeah, and absolutely. so that, I think there's actually a much more optimistic story to be told. And I hope I didn't sort of sound too pessimistic because what I sort of want to show is here is the context and it's sort of irrefutable in a sense that you, you can't think about any present moment without that broader context. But mm-hmm. I guess what comes through in rugby league is that, you know, certainly the government's ambitions, they saw rugby league as a great tool to achieve assimilation. And that would have been also acceptance of Aboriginal people by white townsfolk and so forth. And in actual fact, what Aboriginal people have done is redirected rugby league to be something that is far more celebratory mm-hmm. of Aboriginal worlds and Aboriginal culture and lives. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, let's get to that kind of celebratory side of things. And we move into to this century 
and another important milestone for Indigenous Rugby League. And this is the Indigenous All-Stars concept. So what do you think being the societal factors that kind of paved the way for that concept to be born? I suspect you had charismatic people like Preston Campbell who persuaded the NRL. I'm sure the NRL you know, put some stuff into their calculator and realised that it would be good for the game. Mm. You know, I don't want to sound cynical, but, you know, I think these are corporations. They have to operate on a budget and so forth. And I think there is some advantage to them to have a program of inclusion. And I think Aboriginal players do bring something to the game. So I think there are benefits for rugby league. I think there are benefits for clubs in terms of how they can manage the welfare and more social engagement of their club. You know, South Cares, for instance, is one factor that allows the club to, to badge itself in, you know, certain philanthropic terms. So I don't think I'm pointing out or bursting a bubble there or, or being overly cynical. I, I think clubs clubs have to operate in a certain way and I think their embracing of Aboriginal worlds and Aboriginal culture is good for their identity, it's good for their brand, it's good for their community following. Mm. And I think, you know, the All-Stars game has shifted and changed a few times mm-hmm. over the last sort of decade and the knockout has been an increasing fixture of the All-Stars game and the participation of, of women, including Aboriginal women, has been an increasing part of the All-Stars and of NRL. Mm. So I think these are kind of shifts that reflect social, economic, political will uh, on the part of the NRL, and I think it makes sense to their brand to do that. Sure. And I guess it's clear to me, Heidi, that uh, Indigenous NRL players as a cohort are much more engaged with their culture than, than generations past. Do you agree with that, A, and, and do you think that's part of a broader societal trend, a, a generational shift, you know, perhaps aided by the All-Stars concept? What's what's your reading of that? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a difficult one because we start to make the suggestion that players today are more engaged with their culture when those factors might also be part of broader trends. Yeah. So, Clint, you know, one thing I think is, is an interesting phenomenon that I'd love someone to do more research on mm. is... You know, you think about the recruitment patterns of some teams from certain areas. So St. George, for instance, I think they've had a pretty solid a track record of recruiting a lot of players from northwestern New South Wales. Mm-hmm. So you think about Nathan Blacklock, George Rose was there for a bit, Rick Walford was there, Dennis mm-hmm. Kinchler, there are many others, you know, all from sort of northwestern New South Wales towns. Parramatta. Parramatta had a close affiliation with the Narwhan Eels, so there were quite a few blackfellas from Armadale who played with Narwhan Eels. I'm, I'm sure their Armadale players played in other teams as well. But there are some really interesting patterns, like there are like footprints. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, one of the young Peachy boys, I read an interview with him recently and he was talking about how he always wanted to play with Cronulla because his uncle was there. Yeah. So you see these... These men who played in the first grade NRL were, you know, just so influential in the lives of, of this next generation who are coming through. Mm. And their interest in playing for those sides was in part because of, you know, that family history with the club. Yeah. And because it's a relatively recent phenomenon where we've had critical numbers of Aboriginal players in teams, mm. that's a real phenomenon. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that sort of plays out over the, yeah. you know, the next generation. Yeah, I guess the the saying standing on the, the shoulders of giants kind of comes to mind when you talk about Tyrone Peachy and, and, and seeing his uncle and being inspired by that and for him to go to greater heights. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, uh, uh, so just a, a quick broader question. What role does rugby league or can rugby league or sport in general play in, in pushing 
the national conversation around issues such as you know reconciliation or constitutional recognition, as, as well as broader issues, I suppose, like Australia's history at the frontier. Do you think sport can play a positive role in rugby league in particular in this case? Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it has to be authentic. I know there was a little bit of pushback about the recognised campaign and how that was taken up so actively by some rugby league teams. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think that has to be authentic. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, sometimes that leadership and role models also operates at a subtle level. And, you know, when we were just talking about, say, some of the older generation now and then their nephews and kids coming through, what role models they were for them, how they aspire to be like them. Mm. I think that's an area that's really important. So what you know, when we think about recognition and the voice and those bigger sort of grand stories about you know, the national political discourse, that's mm. one thing and that's really important. Yeah. But I think some of those role models and inspiration happen in a more everyday, familiar way. So, you know, some of these, these players, if you go to events during NAIDOC week, the clubs will send their players to these events and they are absolutely swamped, these young players, like, you know, the Cody Walkers and yeah. those players, the young ones, they just adore them. They want to get their signature, they want to get photos taken with them. And that goes for other players, even older players who have been retired for, for 20 or 30 years. You go places and there's still this community appetite for getting their photo taken with them. So I think, you know, how these, how Aboriginal rugby league players, they really loom large amongst blackfellas, you know, and mm. I think that's a really important factor in, in Aboriginal worlds to have these these people who really were, were so significant on the big stage of rugby league. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I guess I asked the question and I sort of angled it towards the sort of political issues of, you know, reconciliation, constitutional recognition, because I think back to my youth, I guess, and and I didn't really learn anything substantive about relations with Indigenous Australians at school. In, in fact, if I hadn't come across a, an album of Kev Carmody songs, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I think I'd still be quite ignorant to the reality. And, and so that bunch of songs sort of encouraged me to search out more information about, you know, the Indigenous experience and then what really happened in history and at the frontier. And I guess it's a part of our history that was hidden from me when I was at school. And, and I guess that makes sporting institutions like the NRL all the more important in terms of the role they can help play. Because there's a huge chunk of the population, you know, at least my age and older, who unless they actively investigated something, wouldn't know what really happened. And and you think, you know, how can Australia have a a sensible conversation about these sorts of issues when there's a large chunk of the population who have very minimal exposure to, you know, these issues and and the reality of of the past? So I guess, you know, it it was music for me in that case, but uh, it could be sport and and rugby league for for others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think you raised just such a... Such a powerful point there because, you know, you think how is it that Aboriginal history is mandated in school curriculum? It's in a lot of university curriculum. But how is it that we still have, I still have young people coming to university still saying, why weren't we told? How come we didn't know this stuff? Mm. And I don't know the answer to that because there are thousands of books written about Aboriginal history these days. Mm. And yet, as you say, if you were to say, ask us, well, we do this as an exercise sometimes, just to just to talk to myself, I think, in class. And say, if you were to write a list of the Aboriginal people you know or aspects of Aboriginal history that you know, you know, what, what would you include? And so 
most people say, oh, Kathy Freeman, or maybe mm. today they'd say Ash Barty, I hope. Mm. Or, or they'd list sport people, they'd list rugby league players or AFL players. So knowing those figures, knowing those you know public figures and uh, lauded incredible athletes does not translate into a knowledge of, you know, the bigger historical moments. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also mindful that it's a big responsibility to place on sports people because you sort of, you have to learn Aboriginal history. You mm. have to learn Australian history. It doesn't, I don't know that you can be told it. It's not like um, you could sort of lift your top of your head off and, and pour information in. It's something, it's a more structural phenomenon that leads you to not know stuff, mm. you know? Yeah. So I think what is missing in the teaching of history is a framework to understand the past. Yeah. And I guess what I've tried to suggest, you know, in our discussion is you can take any kind of institution, like rugby league, for instance, and it can tell you just an incredibly rich story about Australian history. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think rugby league in particular, maybe there are others, but certainly rugby league, you know, if we, as we start to unpack rugby league, geez, we just can get down some really fantastic rabbit holes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Heidi, I really want to thank you for being so generous with your time and your insights. But one more question, if I may, to finish off, and it's a lighter question, hopefully. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are your favourite rugby league memories in your lifetime? Oh, gee. Um, oh, gee, that's oh, a recent one. Being out at Homebush when Souths won the premiership. Yeah, 2014. And then getting the train back into town and we went to um, Barbecue King, which is a, well, yeah. it was a fantastic Chinese restaurant and loads of people were pouring in that, you know, everyone was, it was like the city turned into a village, you know. It was yeah. like, sort of like Christmas, but even better. <laughs> everyone was happy and saying hello to one another. And there was one lone character who was um, driving up and down George Street. He had like, a, if my memory serves me right, a ute with sort of oversized tyres and a, and a rabbitose flag, you know, hooked into every nook and cranny on this ute. And he was just beeping his horn and driving up and down George Street. I just thought that was a <laughs> mighty fine solo effort. Yeah. yeah. That was a beautiful then, moment. Yeah. And then, you know, going down to the Oval the next day. and Redford oh, Oval. Golly. Yeah. Yeah. It was just such a... Um, yeah, it was just such a celebration, but it was sort of subdued. Even walk, walking to the train station after the game, we sort of stayed right until the last sort of player left the field. Yeah. And it was kind of subdued. It wasn't, I think it was a bit like, you felt a bit unpracticed in celebrating. <laughs> yeah. It had been so long. <laughs> yeah. And I guess like a feeling of maybe affirmation as well after all South Sydney had been through and after all that community had been through in the at the turn of the century as well. It must have been a, an amazing feeling for South Sydney yeah. fans. Yeah. Well, Heidi, it's been a real honour to have you on the show and to help us better understand through Rugby League how things came to be. So really appreciate you taking the time. So Heidi Norman, thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks, Jono. Progressive Rugby League. Look, that was really enlightening for me. Hope you got something out of it too. And a quick nod to the great Tony Collins for the inspiration for this episode. Okay, time to call it until we next cross paths somewhere in rugby league land. Rugby league hobby. And see ya.